Hello, hello, and welcome back to All Plotted Out, a My Little Pony Friendship is Magic podcast, where we're trawling through the later seasons of the show, episode by episode, because, you know, I think they deserve it. My name is Pornhart, that's P-A-W-N Hart, I thank you very much, and today we'll be looking at the two-part season seven finale, Shadow Play. Now, owing to the kind of last-minute feeling build-up to this two-parter, I admit I have come into it with a degree of consternation. I don't recall liking it very much, but uh, hey, I'm open to surprises. Both parts first aired on October the 28th, 2017, and were written by Josh Haber and Nicole DeBuck from a story by Josh Haber. And Josh Haber is also the script editor. He wrote the incidental music, set up the Dolly track, and did the catering too. So, good on you, Josh. Now, Nicole is new to the show at this point. However, she will be a pretty significant writer in the final two seasons of the show. And Josh Haber is Josh Haber. IMDb seems to rather like these episodes, with the two-parter averaging out at a pretty solid 8.5. And the synopsis for part one reads, When Sunburst discovers the long-lost journal of Starswirl, Twilight makes it her mission to save her magical idol from a limbo-like prison. Pretty accurate, pretty to the point. Very pretty, very fast-paced intro on this one has a lovely sort of medieval illumination style going for it. And I I am particularly taken by them modelling one of the, the compositions on uh, Giotto's Arena Chapel paintings, which is something that I referenced a few episodes back. It pleases me in a nerdy way. I do like that this doesn't waste any time saying, I found this in a book, let's go and see the princesses. It opens basically with the story being recounted by Sunburst in the throne room. And it's about a minute long, does all it needs to do. But it does issue forth a big problem with this episode. What's the urgency here? I do think that part one is the weaker of the two here. And a main part of that is the lack of stakes or impetus behind all the legwork they're putting in here. Twilight declares in the throne room, oh, we've, we've got to find out this mystery. We've got to work out what happened to these ponies a thousand years ago. And they all seem to be sleep deprived and driving themselves to exhaustion over this really not all that pressing issue. Now, later on in the story, we are introduced to the Pony of Shadows, who will, in time, become a real threat. Kind of. But this threat is not introduced until the very end of episode one. And while they did a similar thing in the pilot episode with Nightmare Moon, there was a lot of stuff to do in that first episode. You had to introduce Twilight, you had to introduce Cantalot, Ponyville, the contrast between the two, all of the new characters, Twilight's resistance to the new surroundings, all of that had to be built up in order for part two to make sense. Now, there's no need for any of that here. This is seven seasons hence. So what do they actually do 
before the main threat is introduced. Well, a lot of magical stuff seems to happen purely by chance. Someone says, oh, well, we'll never find out the solution to this. Oh, look, it's the solution to this. It's either directly on the page in front of them, or just them saying it causes some magical butt-stamp magic to (laughs) fight about. You don't get a massive sense of this being a really arduous long-term process. A lot of it just seems to fall into place. But uh, I can't help thinking that it might have been a little bit better if they introduced finding the pillars through their individual possessions earlier in the episode. Because although not that much here actually adds up to all that much in a dramatic sense, they do have to cover a lot of ground. I mean, there is literally a like a six-minute fetch quest involving all of the main six in separate capacities. Now, the introduction of the pillars in previous episodes already felt a bit rushed. They weren't given any growth, nor really did they have any of the comparisons we're supposed to draw between them and the main six introduced with any real vigour. And considering this is a a thousand-year-old mystery, not only are the solutions presented to them by the very convenient cutie map instantly, they actually managed to find these lost artefacts within seconds. So there was really no dramatic interest in this passage of the episode. Sadly, given that the feed-in section in the episode Campfire Tales, uh, for rarity, and whatever that other character is called, was the best of that episode, here, rarity's collecting the flower and initiating and resolving an arc takes, and I counted this from the first frame to the quote-unquote antagonist saying you've given me back my family's legacy that's 57 seconds now it's true yep the spike and rainbow dash storyline is considerably better um almost disproportionately longer it's about four minutes five minutes which i think could have been measured out with some of the other characters and it's it's not much of a challenge is it They go to the Dragonlance. Garble, a character we've seen before, by coincidence, seems to have found this ancient shield that they want. Spike challenges him and says, well, if I can get to the bottom of this lava flow before you, yeah, I I get the shield. And Garble's like, yeah, pony. And and so they do that. Uh, And Spike just blunders his way down, smacks his face on some rocks and just happens to land before Garble. Uh, which isn't exactly fair, because Garble was actually the one observing the rules here. But it's all right, because they have a chance to uh, to redeem themselves and restore honour to this competition. So Rainbow Dash challenges him back up the lava flow and then basically nicks the shield behind his back. You should not, in these circumstances, be siding with Garble, I think. And that's an issue. Hey, Twilight, look what me and Spike stole. Given that all of this is quite rushed, I do like the fact that they lean into this a little bit with Pinky. Like it is played for laughs that she just happens to find the object she's looking for. Oh, and that Applejack broadhoof subplot. Very subplot. She manages to change a character's lifetime of cultural and professional conditioning 
by all of a sudden illustrating supernatural strength we've never seen before. It doesn't make any sense, it's silly, but it's thankfully brief. Now, one thing I will say for this is that while it is rushed, it is pacey. It's not a slow episode, so it at least has that in its favour. There's a lot going on, and it is very attractive to look at. Lots of interesting compositions of shots, uh, interesting colour schemes, new environments. I mean, this actually ratchets up even more in part two when they go to hollow shades, but we'll come to that. It is also nice to see the main six interacting like this, working together and helping each other, and each bringing their little dash of flavour to it. doesn't feel like we get this as often anymore. So we get nice little character bits for each. <laughs> I love Fluttershy stroking the stone, knocking a bit off, and then trying, <laughs> trying clumsily to put it back into place. It's a sweet little uh, hidden moment for her there. But <laughs> as a segue into my next big point, I also like uh, Rarity's line, We understand you're excited. But that's all we understand. This is in response to Twilight's enthusiasm for bringing back the pillars of friendship and the methods to do this that she's laid out. Perhaps what sticks in my craw about this episode more than anything else is the lack of justification. If the Pony of Shadows had been introduced earlier in the episode to give an idea of an actual threat to modern Equestria. It might have given some rationale for bringing back the only ponies who knew how to fight it. However, we are not introduced to this, as mentioned before, until right at the end of the episode, and Twilight's justification for bringing back these ponies with such urgency is really shaky. Now, character-wise, it is understandable that she is excited to meet Starswell the Bearded, a real hero of hers, and that it does plant some nice seeds for the next episode. But, and this is quoting her directly, her main justification for bringing him back, bringing the others back, without knowing what happened to them, why they disappeared at the same time as the Pony of Shadows, and various other worrying unknowns, is... Equestria would be safer with him in it. We have to save him. That's very broad. That's very broad. And I don't think it is worth the, the implied danger here. And what do you know? It's a stupid idea. Oh, thank goodness for Starlight. She does start putting her foot in the door cautiously in this first episode. Not enough... I wish she would say more directly, why are we doing this? Why? Why, Twilight? And so when, towards the end of the episode, she advises caution and says, unless the most legendary ponies of all time knew what they were doing and we shouldn't mess with it, it is a huge relief. I just think this should have been structured differently. Maybe they could have made more about why Twilight was so obsessed rather than just using that as a plot device to get to the end of the episode. And as I say, why didn't they introduce the stakes earlier on? All of this fetch quest stuff, all of these spell books and U-turns, it's, it's just the whim of an obsessive nerd. <laughs> no offence to Twilight, I love you Twilight, but the others really need to ask themselves some questions if they're going to follow Twilight into this.
Now, it might sound like I absolutely hate part one. I don't. There are, as mentioned, some lovely character bits. It is fun to see the whole group working together. There is a degree of mitigation that Starlight starts to ask questions before the end, and this does build into something, but it is fundamentally flawed. Sadly, continuing in the same vein as the rather hurried feeling introduction of these elements in previous episodes, it is in too much of a hurry. It feels like it has just crammed in a load of elements without giving them suitable weight, which comes far too late to make the first episode involving in any real sense. But I am going to hold off rating episode one on its own, even though I feel part two is better, because I feel it needs to be looked at through the lens of part two. It's not over yet. Right now, part two, we actually get introduced, or to a degree reintroduced, to the pillars of friendship. Broadhoof, Somnambula, Flower Lady, Bradley... And misc. There is not time to actually render any of these characters with any depth. Nor is there sufficient room to actually play up potential contrasts between them and their main six counterpart. With one exception. And that is obviously Twilight and Starswell the Bearded. I do quite like this element that... She is desperately trying to win his approval. Kind of wish they'd planted the seeds for this a little more in episode one. Might have actually more directly fed her obsession with bringing him back. But that is a, it's it's a neat little arc. And there's some cute character business where she sort of keeps leaning in from the edge of frame to him saying like, "Have have I proven myself? Have I redeemed myself after messing everything up? And then sort of, sheepishly (laughs) moving out of frame again. Now I'm nearly through with the nagging here because I've got a lot of good stuff to say about part two. Gotta say, as visually pleasant, as visually excellent actually, as this two-parter is, there's a lot of interest. Pony of Shadows design is a little bit lame. It, It looks like a quick sketch someone has made of, of, of an, of an, of an evil horse. But It's not a big deal, does the job, Uh, and it's not really about the Pony of Shadows as a character. It's about what the Pony of Shadows represents. Gotta say, why do they keep bringing back Sunburst when he doesn't have much to do? I really like the character and the voice actor, but he's just not been very self-possessed since his first appearance in The Crystalline. A lot of the time he's just sort of explaining the plot or saying what they're looking at here, which is a, it seems a tremendously poor use of the character, which does seem a little bit of a missed opportunity. But now onto the good stuff, because I will be frank and I'm really pleased about this. This two-parter is better than I was expecting it to be on this rewatch. I had it in my head that it was a a, a total mess with some little spots of inspiration or good ideas that weren't fleshed out in it. It does actually build to something pretty good in part two, although 
there are still logic flaws, uh, still plot holes. The episode really finds its purpose when the dynamic triangle between Twilight, Starswirl, and Starlight is introduced. I think the Starlight subplot is really, really good here, and I do like the fact that it's gradually introduced, and was, to a degree, gradually introduced in episode one by her saying, well, surely we should think about this first? Maybe it isn't that black and white? I was almost ready to say, oh, it's one Starlight-used-to-be-evil joke too many, when Rainbow Dash says, it's like, oh, wow, so this works like a supervillain tracker, just like when we found Starlight. But it does feed into the theme of the episode, that they are regarding this, as they once regarded Starlight, as a villain, as a threat, and nothing else. And this is very obviously personally upsetting and disquieting for her, and she finally gets the strength to stand up to Twilight and say, you gave me another chance and look what happened. Why are you rushing into this? And both of them are given the chance to put this to the test. I love Starlight. She's an awesome character. And it also uh, gives Starswirl, who seems nicely stuck up, a chance to eat some humble pie, as they say. Because he's evidently brilliant, but he's also stubborn and arrogant. Uh, it's nice to have a, a, a slightly balanced character uh, amidst these pillars, because, as I recall, even in later episodes, you don't get a tremendous amount of fleshing out with these characters. Um, in fact, you don't get a, a tremendous amount of these characters at all. The final encounter with Stygian slash the Pony of Shadows uh, is not only gorgeous to look at, really nice colour scheme in the catacombs and all of the... <laughs> All of the friendship laser business, it really nicely builds to a an emotionally pleasing conclusion. It's not just blasting with friendship lasers. It takes time and it is paralleled with Starlight trying to convince the others that the redemption side of this is actually worth pursuing. The sound design, when Twilight gets pulled inside the Pony of Shadows to talk to Stygian, is great. Like the, the, William Anderson's Incidental music is sort of subtle and ethereal, and there's this sudden quiet. Also really good twin voice performance here by Bill Newton, as both Pony of Shadows and Stygian. I wasn't sure originally with Pony of Shadows, because not a tremendously well-written villain in itself. It's kind of Nightmare Moon light. But when you introduce Stygian to this and have him fighting with that other element... It, it works really well, and it's a nice contrast between the two. So, yeah, it does end well. It does end well. Stray observations? There is a slightly twisted part of me that wishes at the end of part one, when the main six sort of systematically save the pillars from the, the falling rocks, <laughs> and after all of this to do, the pillars of friendship had just been crushed. <laughs> So like a fate worse than limbo. And maybe that would have forced a bit of perspective. Like, oh, well, that's, that's that, I guess. <laughs> because honestly, nothing would have changed. There was no threat still by that point. But anyway, there are some uh, accents in this episode, aren't there? I cannot speak for the 
I guess, Egyptian accent being given for Somnambula. But I can certainly speak for the Scottish, possibly, accent of Broadhoof. It's really bad. Unfortunately, he does return. I think there's a bit of uh, fan love for this character. Um, All I can say is, uh, good for you. (laughs) Good for you, I guess. Also, nice little shout-out to the Equestria Girls lore here with the appearance of the Three Sirens from Rainbow Rocks. It's not a scripted reference, so I think it was probably just a cool Easter egg put in by the storyboard artists, possibly. However, I can't... It's been a while since I've seen Rainbow Rocks. The pillars here seem to throw them into some sort of parallel dimension or a shadow dimension of some kind. Is that them chucking them into the Equestria Girls universe? In which case, that's the equivalent of, like, demonic landfill. It's still a problem. It's just hidden. Just be honest with them. I'm sure they'll understand where you're coming from. So, yeah. This is stronger than I feared. (laughs) It does add up to something by the end of the story. I love the Starlight-Twilight subplot. I like the business with Twilight and Starswirl. It's beautiful to look at, and it's pretty gallopingly paced, by and large. But I cannot ignore how weak a lot of the justifications are for the story here, and how low stakes that whole first episode is. It does feel rushed, and it is a shame, because I know what these writers are capable of. I do still have the suspicion that they were kind of backed into a corner at the end of the season and had to mobilise quickly in order to make something suitably epic. But that is conjecture. Anyway, it's not bad, this, but a little more time and polish, it could have been really good. 6.5. Just, uh, wanted to make sure you're ready for your big ceremony today. Yep. Wow, I still can't believe my friends and I are getting medals of honor. So, we're there. End of season seven. Now, I have totted up the ratings that I have given the episodes this season. And it averages out at a 7.4 across the 26 episodes which is only mildly lesser than the 7.5 that I gave to season 6, which is, I think is very strong for a 26-episode series of children's telly. I did assume, going in, that the weaker aspects of this season would weigh it down considerably, but that hasn't really necessarily been the case. It isn't actually that much different, quality-wise, from season 6, However, it's distributed slightly differently. I think season six is a little more consistent. Season seven has, by my metrics anyway, higher highs and some lower lows too. There are two episodes in this season that I gave ten. I didn't give a single ten in season six as much as I really enjoyed the season. And yeah, okay, while I was weighing in heavily with the peaks and troughs levelling out motif here. I've got to say, 
there are actually only two episodes that score five or less in season seven. The problem there being that they both score less, in my estimation, than any episode in season six. We will come back to these episodes. Season seven is not as refreshing in a lot of ways as season six was. There are fewer new elements. There are fewer lasting new character introductions. We were rather spoilt in season six with introductions like Gabby and Thorax, Ember and Quibble Pants. Whereas season seven, it's, it's, I think it can positively be framed as reinforcing existing strengths. And there is something nicely to the point and solid and consolidatory about season seven. A lot more main six business than in season six. And a lot of it is better, I feel, than the main six business in the previous season. There are some lovely, quiet main six character episodes here where season six tended to excel when it was going outside the main characters. Stuff like No Second Prances and Dungeons and Discords et al. But yeah, I think in conclusion, I mean, it it has its wobbles. It's not likely to be the most memorable season, in part because while it starts the first couple of episodes really well, it's not a two-parter. It's not like a huge statement. And the finale is one of the weaker two-parters, I feel. But by and large, it, it's it's really solid. And it's one of those seasons, going back, that surprises you with how many good episodes there are in it and how much the show staff seems to be comfortable with the characters, with the subject matter and bringing out the best in them. This feels like it brings more dimension back to the main cast than season six did, I feel. I hate losing. It's time to look at those Spotify polls. Now, obviously, I only started these sort of mid-season, so it's not exactly going to be comprehensive. But there's a couple that I wanted to talk about results-wise, because they're quite interesting. One I am very much on board with. Yeah, there was a landslide, well, as much as there can be, from a relatively small pool of votes at this point, in favour of discordant harmony, speaking of great main six character episodes, against Not Asking for Trouble. That's a really unfair matchup because Not Asking for Trouble is a decent episode, but Discordant Harmony is wonderful. And yeah, it seems a lot of, uh, a lot of listeners agree. Now, this does not surprise me at all. The most voted on, again, not a huge number at this point, but it's from my most contentious episode, probably, uh, which was the pairing <laughs> of the perfect pair with fame and misfortune. Now, I tried my best to be balanced, but I knew fundamentally I wasn't exactly going to win masses of support with my opinions on the perfect pair, which I think really has its merits, but I think is more flawed than people acknowledge as an episode in its own right rather than a concept. Though I am pleased that while one of the votes for fame and misfortune is me, I'll be honest, someone, someone has joined me in defence of that episode. Because it's not only that the perfect pair is beloved, I think it's also that some fans take issue with fame and misfortune and the way it handles fandom, and I can understand it. 
But I, I, I just think it's a, a much better and more necessary episode than people give it credit for. And it's a shame that M.A. Larson has all but disowned it because, I think, of the fan backlash. I'm sure there's a lot of you who actually quite like it and are maybe just like, well, yeah, it's fine, but it's no The Perfect Pair. But yeah, cool. If, if The Perfect Pair pushes your buttons and means a lot to you, I can't argue with that. And evidently it means a lot to a great many of you, so... Yeah, more power to you. I just wish I could love it as much as you do. Thank you, everyone, who voted. I will be doing the same thing next season and opening the poll up on my Twitter account, at All Plotted Out, where I show up a fair bit now. The next poll will be something a little bit different, given the subject of the next episode. So, yeah, please vote. Right, it's awards time. We did it at the end of Season 6, so I feel obliged to do the same for Season 7, whether you like it or do not. Yeah, yeah if you don't like it, I, I am sorry. So, first up, Best, best New, new character. character. Now, as mentioned before, this isn't exactly a great crop compared to Season 6. There are a few new additions that aren't all that fleshed out. First appearances by Rainbow Dash's parents, and uh, the reappearance, I should say, of Twilight's parents. It's the first time they've actually been established as characters, really. <sighs> Neither of them are tremendously interesting at this point. And, of course, we have the Pillars of Friendship. Um, I will be diplomatic and say that at this point I don't think it is fair to assess them owing to their lack of development. Yeah, that was nice and weaselly, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were three. There were three new characters, none of whom are like high echelon in the show's whole output. But I think they do add something interesting each. Uh, I would like to give an honourable mention to Kettlecorn, who's a side character and a one-joke character, but I love Kettlecorn with her circles and her haikus. She was a much-needed bit of comic relief in that episode, but I don't think I can put her in the main ranking, unfortunately. So, yeah, the runners-up. Rumble from Marks and Recreation. Interesting character, primarily because he brought a new perspective on Cutie Marks. I like the dynamic shift that he brought to the Cutie Mark Crusaders story. Second, Pharynx. Again, in a sort of meta way, it's more commentary on something that's been established in the show, which is that, you know, you assume everybody would, would be cool with the new friendship and love aesthetic that characters bring but of course there are going to be dissenters and what's nice about pharynx is that not only did he show a kind of logical opposite argument to the the new order brought by his brother fascist overtones not intended there he did learn to find his place and be appreciated i liked the balance that that episode brought even though the episode itself didn't quite live up to his potential i felt Number one, and this is largely due to a single reason, is Grandpa 
from the perfect pair. Now, yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of the perfect pair as a whole in its realisation. I do love the ideas behind it, but Grand Pair is a fundamentally likeable and nuanced character. There is real conflict there, but he comes across as a decent pony. But, but, let's be frank, the main reason he's here is the voice performance by William Shatner, which is shockingly lovely. It's warm and wise and, and full of experience. It's a really unique voice turn. Glad you make it. Second award, best, best recurring, recurring character. character. Yep, this is a season that uh, reinforces existing strengths, should we say. So there's not going to be many huge surprises in this. Honourable mentions to Spike again. They just get Spike right all the time now. Uh, he's a great character. He just has not had much forefront action at all this time, which is a shame. But he is a smashing character that doesn't often get his due. So the runner-ups, Rainbow Dash. Now, she didn't have a great season six. And as others have pointed out, she kind of fell into a rut for a while that she would make her own problem for an episode and then just have to be pulled back by her friends, which happened a few times with newbie Dash and 28 Pranks Later and others. She wasn't treated well at all in season six. Here, well, yeah, she does in some ways make her own problem in parental guidance. It does show an interesting new facet to the character, and she isn't just being mean and callous for the sake of it. There's history behind her actions there. But also it feels that in episodes like Daring Done and Secrets and Pies, a little bit of balance is being restored, that we should remember that she is this determined capable, compassionate character who can just jump to the wrong conclusions. Again, it's not been a, a major banner season for Rainbow Dash, but I think there's been a good deal done with rounding her character out. Number one, number one, it's rarity. I really like how well-rounded her depiction has been this season. Even though it's an Applejack-centric episode, she is the sort of responsible and relatable backbone to Honest Apple, which isn't, it is not a masterpiece, but I very much appreciate her and her motivations in that episode. She comes across as responsible and kind, even though her logic might be a little flawed. She pretty much carries campfire tales on her back by not only presenting the story in an interesting way and as I mentioned in that episode giving the title to the season finale through her shadow puppetry as implausible as it is it's actually the only story that actually relates to her and her beliefs and actually has a character arc so that's cool she had a really good bit of character development in Forever Philly, which is a, a game of two halves, to be sure. But the Sweetie Belle and Rarity part is really, really good. And again, it's well-intentioned on her part, the mistakes she's made. There's nothing mean about them. It's just she, she has to adapt. Lovely little development episode for both. Just ignore the dog bit. 
But yeah, really, I mean, it isn't the main thing about you. It's a smashing, if slightly quiet, rarity episode that shows all of her strengths and potential drawbacks working in balance. Thank you! Yeah, least favourite episode. Not a huge competition here. The two weakest episodes of the season are so far below the others, it sticks out quite profoundly in my mind. Others might not agree. I've obviously said how imbalanced I think Forever Philly is, but that main plot is really good, so nope, nope. It is a war, and it really is a war of attrition between Fluttershy leans in and a flurry of emotions. Flurry of emotions was a tonal mess and very cyclical and repetitive in its realisation. It seemed to be aiming at toddlers and married couples, but nothing in between. And so it kind of fell flat and failed to resolve its message at the end as well. Just really not good. But, you know, I might have to give the nod to Fluttershy Leans In, simply because that has managed to become my go-to for illustrating poorly integrated messages, broad characterization, twisting characters just to fit the plot of a story or the ideology of the author, and really flat, uninteresting new character additions. It's a mistake, I think. Uh, and yeah, it's it's from a from an author who really has done a lot better and will do a lot better. I don't know how much it was mucked around with, but but in the end, the episode just doesn't work. I'm so, so sorry. Can you ever forgive me? Favourite episode of the season. Now, this has far more competition, but uh, it still was fairly easy to pick my favourite from it, I've got to say. Now, honourable mentions, and this just shows the quality of this season. Secrets and Pies. Fantastic Pinkie Pie episode, great Rainbow Dash episode, funny, fast-paced, great stuff. Triple Threat, again, really good Spike episode, and just really nice to have the interplay between Starlight, Spike, Twilight, and the, the new additions from Season 6, Thorax and Ember, both being terrific characters. And this is a really well-rounded episode for the lot of them. Cool stuff. And all bottled up. Perhaps a little too flippant in its uh, <laughs> depiction of the main six. And I know some people find that Trixie's a little too mean here. But I do actually think it's in character. Uh, and it's more about Starlight's reaction to it anyway. I think this is a really funny episode. And it's just so great to see Trixie and starlight interacting like this i love the slightly dysfunctional aspect of their friendship because it is evidently still a friendship they have a bond that they cannot retract but now the top five number five it isn't the main thing about you really well-rounded rarity episode not much wrong with this at all number four once upon a zeppelin really memorable premise um and i love what it does with both Twilight and Cadence. I think it's such a good Twilight episode. We don't seem to get that many of those these days. And this was a really, really welcome one with a lot to remember and a really good use of Iron Will. Number three, Celestial Advice, the season opener. This packs such a lot in. I'd forgotten 
And I love the way it redefines the Twilight and Celestia relationship. It's not only a lot of fun, this episode, it's just, it's got real heart and wit to it. Number two, Discordant Harmony. One of the best Fluttershy episodes, I think. One of the best Discord episodes. Brings out the best in both characters and shows why they are actually quite good for each other. But number one, it's funny, it's memorable, it expands the lore without overcluttering things. Brilliant dynamic between Twilight, Starlight, the princesses. An, an enriching and royally entertaining episode, of course. It's a royal problem, which is excellent. One of my favourites of the whole run. It was the right call going with your gut. With that in mind, we move on to Writer, writer of the, of the season. season. Now, while Josh Hamilton contributed three episodes and his lowest rated was an eight, he did a fantastic... This was his introductory season. And he had parental guidance... Triple Threat, and Secrets and Pies. His character writing is established remarkably quickly. But they were the script editors for this season. I think after the initial wobbles, I don't think I gave them enough credit. They actually did fine, in as much as I understand the role. But as writers, Lewis and Sonko, more often than not, are amongst the best the show ever had. And this is their showcase. Celestial Advice is one of theirs. All Bottled Up is one of theirs. That was a great start to the season, that two episodes I gave a nine to. But also, A Royal Problem is theirs. And yes, The Perfect Pair is theirs as well. So if you actually are more inclined towards The Perfect Pair, you might even think this is more of an unqualified victory. But yeah, they've, they've been so good since they first arrived, really. I never claim to be perfect. My mistakes are all written in ink. None of us claim to be perfect. And it's sad if that's what you all think. Our flaws help to make us special. They bond us and keep us strong. Our flaws are what brought us together. So stop acting like something's You still with me? <laughs> we are soon going to be going into season eight, obviously. And the adverse reactions to season eight, as I might have implied in the past, are one of the main reasons that I actually started this podcast. Because I rewatched it and I'm like, I, I really like this season. It's It seems so much better than people give it credit for. And I knew I had something to say about it. It's a big shake-up for the show. And uh, for better or worse, it is a very memorable season. <laughs> but first, before any of that, we've got a little movie to cover. So yeah, I hope you will join me next episode when we'll be looking at My Little Pony, the movie. Not to be confused with the My Little Pony movie from the 80s or My Little Pony, a new generation from 2021. Gives me an idea for a poll. Hey, Madame Curie. 
I've got an idea for you. Bet you didn't know Marie Curie was Polish. Neither did I, actually, for that matter. You learn something every day. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this ride. We're halfway there in my original plotted trajectory for the show. Uh, and I'm, just, I'm really enjoying this, and I, I do hope you're enjoying it, too. Got any problems, troubles, conundrums, or any other sort of issues, major or minor, that I, as a good friend, could help you solve? I'd like to thank everybody who has voted, or reacted, or sent things through. Uh, I would love to hear from more of you, have more of your opinions. If you think I'm bang out of line about something, as long as it's constructively done, please, please let me know. One of the ways in which you can do this, as always, is to contact me by email, all plotted out at outlook.com, or lowercase, all one word, all plotted out at outlook.com, or you can contact me on Twitter at all plotted out. There'll be polls for the next episode and for all the episodes going forward, uh, both on Spotify and on Twitter. So, yeah, please let me know your thoughts. But until next time, Stay safe, stay well, stay tolerant, and Ray Manzarek from The Doors is Polish? Huh. A lot of famous Poles. If you take anything away from this season, make it that. Maybe the later books are slightly more realistic than I gave them credit for.